Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Recycling. It's something we're all supposed to do, but changes in the rules have left people with questions. This week, we try and get some answers. A year ago, the city of Tucson announced that glass would no longer be accepted in residents' curbside recycling bins. Instead, residents are supposed to take their glass to drop-off points throughout the city. So did it work, or did residents simply stop recycling glass? Christina Polsgrove is the spokesperson for Tucson Environmental and General Services. She joins us now to explain what happened. I was pleasantly surprised. I I really kind of thought people would not want to do it, but people have really participated well. The glass that we get is very clean. It's minimal contamination, which is great. I understand that if we look at the numbers on weight of glass dropped off a year ago versus weight of glass dropped off over this year, it did decrease. How much did it go down? So I've just been looking at those numbers recently because it has been a year. And in the year prior, we had about 5,300 tons that had gone to the recycling facility. But in the last year, what we collected at drop-off was 1,763 tons. But there were still people putting their glass in their blue barrels. So we still, you know, want to count that. So that was 2,493 tons. So a total of 4,256. Not to encourage people to do things incorrectly and put the glass in their blue barrel. But if that does happen, it sounds like it gets pulled out at the sorting center. So it's not just thrown away. Right. And, you know, that was not an issue. The glass was not being thrown away or landfilled. It was being recycled. However, as the costs for our processing have gone up so much since the China National Sword, glass was not something that was ever a revenue driver. And so we were paying at the highest point almost $110 a ton. So $110 a ton for everything that goes over the scale. And you offset that by getting, you know, revenues back for some of the more marketable commodities. Glass just wasn't one of them. So it was just strictly a cost. So trying to take that out helped us on our bottom line. When the plan was rolled out last year to to get rid of the curbside recycling, one of the things that we, the public, were told was, we're going to keep that glass local and reuse it. So after a year, how has the keep it local and reuse it part of this plan gone? So we did purchase a glass crusher, and then I know that Steve Kazachik has still been crushing glass in his in his little garage area there. And I know that he's given some of that to Bottle Rocket Design because they reached out to us too. And Unfortunately, it's been a challenge to try and get that glass crushed at the landfill just because, like everybody else, we've been experiencing some staffing shortages. You know, that's just been one of those things that it's not going to cause a problem if it's just sitting there. However, other things have happened in the market. So Strategic Materials, which is the largest glass recycler in the country, they have a plant in Phoenix. 
and they've come out and looked at the glass and they'd be very interested in some of it. And to be honest, we're getting more than we expected. So that's kind of the other thing is we have more. What are we going to do with it? And I've spoken with people who use glass locally for construction projects and things, and we're happy to share with them. That's fine if they need it. But strategic materials, they also use it. And they've talked to us about, you know, how do we get some? Because the quality and the cleanliness of the glass is something that really interests them. It's very helpful to them to get it where it's so clean. The other thing that happened in the last year, too, in between when we made this decision and now, Owens Corning is reopening their plant in Eloy, and they've also expressed interest in the glass. And so while that's strictly not local, it's definitely regional. It's not going across the world or over the. It's going to stay in Arizona. I remember a year ago, part of the discussion in the cost of recycling glass was the shipping cost. I would imagine if this facility in Phoenix or Owens Corning in Eloy is interested in the glass, the shipping goes on them at that point. They've got to come get it, right? Right. And that in some of the discussions that we've been having is one of the things we would expect that they would come and pick it up. We've been talking about curbside recycling of glass, but what about commercial, those bars and restaurants that are reopening again that have beer bottles, wine bottles, ketchup bottles, if glass ones of those still exist, uh, things like that. How do they fit into all of this? We're still looking at how we can reach out to those businesses that use a lot of glass. And actually, there's a group in Phoenix called Glass King. And we've been talking with them and with the Glass Packaging Institute because in Phoenix, Glass King runs a program where they collect from hotels and restaurants and bars, and then they use it or work with strategic materials. And one of the things they would look to the city for is, you know, space to store it until they move it. And we're happy to support that. So that, again, that's just one of the other things that would be possibly on the horizon. And they would do the collection and work with the businesses themselves. So that's another outlet for us, potentially. That was Christina Polsgrove with Tucson Environmental and General Services. She'll be back with us later in the show to talk about some larger recycling issues. Recycling is only part of what we're supposed to do to reduce the amount we put in the waste stream. There's also a reuse component. That's where Seto comes in. It's a store in Tucson that specializes in using less. Val Timmon is the co-founder. So Seto is a zero-waste shop or an eco-friendly store where we have a variety of home and body products that are sustainable in nature, locally made, and we also offer a bring-your-own-container refill section. So what does it mean exactly to be a zero-waste store? So to be a zero-waste shop, our goal is to highlight that 
a life with a little less waste or a lot less waste is definitely possible if you make choices and build different habits that can support that goal. So how did Seto get started? Seto got started because I had been dreaming of, since the end of my high school days, well, what would it look like to have stores just as we do, but without all of the trash as a byproduct. Soon after I had this original idea, zero waste stores started popping up in Europe, in Canada, throughout the United States. But until 2019, Tucson didn't have a dedicated zero waste shop. And that's when uh, my dear friend Nalene and I got together. Her are passionate about eating vegan and the same environmental causes as me. So where do you get your products uh, that you sell to the rest of us at Seto? We get our products a few different ways. We work with over a dozen local made in Arizona vendors. We work with regional companies that are family and independently owned from around the states, like in Connecticut, California. And we also work with international producers and wholesalers, but everything has to meet our criteria that it's vegan, sustainable, and it gets bonus points if it's a woman-owned operation, minority-owned operation, and if they have sustainable initiatives beyond just their products as well. People, or you all, also take things that maybe I'm finished with and I, I think the phrase you use for it is seto cycling and, and give them a new life. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so with our seto cycling program that's been going about two years now, it is our unique reuse and recycling program where we try to keep reusable items in circulation a little bit longer. And we help Tucsonans recycle some of those difficult to recycle items. So some of the items we collect are redistributed at no cost back to community members and local organizations, like our prescription bottles are collected and passed on to the Primavera Foundation for hygiene product distribution. And items like takeout utensils we pass on to local organizers who do free food distribution. If somebody has old pill bottles or, or plastic utensils, those takeout utensils we were talking about, how do they get them to you? What's the, what's the best way to make sure that they don't end up in the landfill? So I'll definitely encourage folks to visit setotucson.com and look for our Seto cycling page on all the details for what we do and don't take and how to prepare it for drop-off. But our hours are Wednesday through Sunday, 2 to 6 p.m. right now. And you can bring your supplies down to us during our shop's open hours. So somebody walks in Seto for the first time. What are they going to see? So one of the comments that we usually get when folks first walk in the store is, wow, it smells so good in here and what a nice space. Um, so we love it when people say that, but they can expect to see our front area filled with local made in Arizona items. And that includes candles, body products, jewelry, handkerchiefs, different things like that. 
And then they'll continue on to find an array of eco-friendly products like metal safety razors, unpackaged soaps, and then they'll also encounter our refill section with products like dish soap, hand soap, laundry detergent liquid that they can refill with. Do most people who wander in, maybe they don't know exactly what Seto is, do they get what you're trying to do? I think that most people do get it. Um, we're in a physical location right now where we don't get the most foot traffic. So most of the people who come to see us are there for us. But it's such a special feeling to, for example, whether it's somebody local who comes and discovers and just says, like, I've been waiting for something like this. I've been waiting for a plastic free or refill store in Tucson. We're so glad you're doing this. And then there's also the folks who are coming through town. They're zero wasters already. They're looking for a refill store and they were able to find us on Google and fill up on all their essentials before they take their RV into Mexico, just as an example. That's happened a couple times. And you all do education programs too at the store, don't you? Yes. So that's something that we're about to pick back up this March after a brief kind of holiday New Year hiatus. But our events program typically features at least one workshop per month, as well as one litter pickup and one pop-up shopping event where we bring extra special guest vendors who are vegan or local makers to have an outdoor shopping party. That was Val Timmon, the co-founder of Seto in Tucson. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're talking about recycling. Food waste is not recyclable in the usual sense. That is, until you talk with Michael Morse at Inch by Inch. Inch by Inch is a company that my wife and I started some years ago. We were sponsored by some friends in North Carolina. We started with uh, worms. They're composting worms. People call them earthworms. They're generally called red wigglers. That's their nickname. And some support material. And the idea was to composting worms engineer soil. They eat organic material and produce castings. Castings is just a euphemism for worm poop. And though castings are used in agriculture, they're used by farmers, they're used by home gardeners, they're used by vineyards. They're used by everybody because they're they're a superior soil amendment. So that's where we got started. So if if I buy the castings and I decide that that's really cool and I want to do this myself, do you guys sell the worms too and help me out to do a, a very miniature version of it? Yes, exactly. We have people that buy worms and they have worms. They're now products which are made for growing a worm farm. Usually they're built like stacking trays or some version of that. And they raise their own worms. A lot of people just buy worms because they don't like throwing out food. They may not have a compost pile or a place to do it. They may live in an apartment. They are soil engineers, and they leave the soil a lot better than they found it. That's one of the reasons why they're good. Fertilizers, commercial fertilizers don't do that. They strip soil, and usually you have to revitalize it somehow. Castings actually serve that purpose. So if I decide I want to get into a, a little home composting here with worms, how hard are they to keep? It's pretty dry here, and worms always strike me as, you know, something that needs a little water. It does. If you put them in a container, if you grow them in a container, you have to keep the bedding materials they live in damp. If you have a garden, normally you would 
probably be keeping it damp anyway, but they don't like native Arizona soil, which is why they don't they aren't found naturally out here occurring naturally in the desert because our soil doesn't have any organic composting material. It doesn't have decomposing plant life like eastern soils or southern soils do. So you have to take care of them to a certain degree. We have lots of different businesses in Tucson. What inspired you all to start inch by inch? It's it's not your usual business. No, it's not. It was inspired. My wife saw a presentation from a man from Boone, North Carolina. And when he started talking about what composting worms could do, she got very interested and very excited. And she came home and said, we got to see what these people are doing. So we hopped on a plane very shortly after that and went and saw their operation and were sufficiently impressed that we signed on with them. They they brought worms with them from North Carolina and containers and various other things to help us get started. But we saw what they could do, and the business model is actually pretty good if you can get started right. And we just really liked it. It's good for plants. Soil is a major issue on the planet. Soil is a problem everywhere. And we figured in our small way we could contribute to both healthier soil and also have a a decent business to leave to our kids or for somebody else. Now, worms don't take up much space. How many worms do you guys have at Inch by Inch? That's a great question. You can count them, but if you count them, you have to take them out of their bedding. When you do that, they start drying up and dying, so we can only estimate. We probably have 300,000 worms or something in, in our place, and that's not even a large operation. That's a small operation. That's but a lot have, of worms. Yeah, it is a lot. So if somebody wanted to do this at home, obviously they probably don't have space for 300,000 worms or 60,000 worms. How many worms does it take your average homeowner, I guess, uh, or family to to be able to do this if they want to come and buy some worms from you? We sell worms up to a half a pound, and a half a pound is about 500. So if you have something the size of a tray or, a, you know, a a tote container like a storage box, you could start with half a pound of worms and and get started. They'll multiply. They, they double in volume about every three months if they're healthy and everything's right. And then um, at the end of three months, you can get another container. But people grow these things under sinks in their houses and in, in garages. It doesn't take much of a footprint. And it sounds like, especially you know, if you're doing it at home, um, or even uh, on a commercial scale, they pull a lot of food out of the waste stream, and you get a great benefit out of it. Yes, they do. They're amazing that way. They they eat quite a bit. They eat, a, I think, half their weight in food every day. So if you feed a half a pound of worms, you feed them, uh, you know, two or three pounds of food in a week. Where do you guys get your food? As you said, 120 pounds of, of food scrap is a lot, and you and your wife and your family probably aren't producing that. So where do you guys get your food for them? Markets markets go through their what they call their wet racks, where they have produce and stuff, and they cull out food that has maybe has a cosmetic blemish. And they do this every single day. I'm working on something with a broker, a food broker, maybe get some food from them. But we, also, we don't feed just scraps. We feed um, horse manure as well. Worms eat paper. They eat wool. They eat cotton. They eat leaves. We feed coffee grounds that we get from coffee houses, and we feed um, bent grains from a brewery. 
taking a lot out of the waste stream. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of what we were hoping for. A lot of people feel the same way about that. That was Michael Morse with Inch by Inch. As we said earlier, food waste is not supposed to go in the recycling bin. In the industry, it's called contamination, and it costs the city money while also spoiling the product. Christina Palsgrove with the City of Tucson joins us again to talk about contamination of recyclables. It's a big problem nationally. In Tucson, our contamination rate has been really steady at about 30%. So a third of everything that goes into the blue bins that gets picked up every other week is trash. So it's trash, and then it's things that are not recyclable, like plastic bags. We did a tagging project this summer, and 44% of the tags were for people putting plastic bags or bagging their recyclables. Those are a problem because they actually tie up the machinery that's doing the processing. It gets wrapped around, and then it's you know, it shuts everything down for a couple of hours while they go in and cut those out. So those are a problem. And then the other part of it is the trash that is just stuff that does not belong in the recycle bin ever. Um, things like dirty diapers, food waste, yard waste, lumber. We've gotten dead animals. Those things cause problems not only with the machinery, but then they ruin the quality of the recyclables that are good, you know, like the cardboard and the paper that have really great market for them. If oil and food gets on them, it ruins the quality and then that just takes the price down. Let's talk about those plastic bags because, as you said, the ones we get at the grocery store or, or the drugstore or wherever, as you said, they're not recyclable, but we shouldn't throw them away I guess they are in some ways recyclable, but we have to take them back to the grocery store, not in the blue bin. Right. And they are recyclable. And you've seen some of these plastic composite woods that tracks, that's what they use. And plastic bags, any kind of film plastic, the bread bags, the dry cleaning bags, Ziploc bags, any of those plastic film stuff that comes wrapped around your cases of water bottles, if you still get them, that's all really good film plastic. And then you can take it back to the grocery store, just like you would your grocery bags. And when it comes to contamination, for those of us who are trying to do the right thing, you said you get a lot of food waste in there. Does that mean I shouldn't recycle my peanut butter jar or my pizza box, what's the best way to handle those? You know, the pizza box, that's been up and down over the years. Now, what we're hearing more recently is that it's fine. Unfortunately, what generally happens, I don't know about you, but in our house, the whole pizza doesn't ever get eaten. And so we end up with pizza and slices of pizza in the blue bin. And that is not acceptable. So I would say if your box is empty and it's not really greasy, then it would be fine. If it's got cheese melted all over it, then yeah, you shouldn't put it in your blue bin. Peanut butter jars. Somebody just recently posted a little video where they had their dog licking the peanut butter out of it. That's good. That's a good way to do it. I know people who put their stuff in the dishwasher if they don't have a full load, you know, but 
I wouldn't want people to do that just for the peanut butter jars, but you just give a quick rinse to most things and it's fine. When it comes to cardboard boxes, for example, obviously we're supposed to break them down. Sometime they'll have staples down the corner or be covered with tape. We don't have to cut any of that out? If it's being held together only with tape, there's so much tape on it, then I would say no. But for stuff that you've just ordered that's been delivered, it's just got a few pieces of tape, it's fine. All right. What are some uh, final thoughts, I guess, on contamination, things we need to remember? Because contamination's expensive to you all and therefore to us at the end of the day. There's two things. There's the contaminants that hurt the machinery, like plastic bags. We see stuff that we call tanglers, electrical cords, string lights, garden hoses, none of those things, wire hangers. Then there's the stuff that just ruins the quality of the paper and cardboard, oil, any liquids. You know, if you're going to put something in, make sure it's empty. I would say for beverages, if it's, you don't necessarily have to rinse every last drop out of it. But if you have half a container of soda or tea or what, yeah, that's just going to ruin, you know, paper. We're taking these materials that would otherwise be thrown away and we're able to make something new from them. If they're not clean, if they're broken down quite a bit, they're not useful. They're not going to be able to be made into something new. I think that's maybe one of the things that always got lost in the whole conversation about why recycling is beneficial. Yes, it saves energy. Yes, it conserves resources. But the idea behind it is that you're going to be creating something new from it. And, and just again, because I want to make sure I get my numbers correct, what does contamination cost the city and therefore the taxpayers each year? Because you said 30% of what gets recycled is actually contaminated. We pay an excess residue fee every month of about twenty-five dollars to $30,000. That's a significant chunk of change. Yeah, it is. So, you know, that's what I would say to our customers is put the right stuff in there. Make sure that it's clean. That was Christina Palsgrove, the spokesperson for Tucson Environmental and General Services. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Megan Myskowski and Samantha Larned helped produce this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.